Chapter thirty six of Just as I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just as I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter thirty six The Man Called Tinker. The time which Jane Barnard had appointed in her own mind for her return to America had come and gone, and she was still patiently drudging on in Mrs. Jebb's service and was not one step nearer success. She wrote to her husband by every mail, and she wrote much more hopefully than she felt, lest he should lose patience and insist upon her immediate return. Her residence under Mr. Jebb's roof had been so far barren of all result. The surgeon talked a great deal, and talked as freely before the American nurse as if she had been deaf and dumb but there was no more substance in his talk by the domestic hearth than there had been in the coffee-room at the Peacock. He had the air of knowing a great deal, of being able to unfold a terrible tale, were he inclined to do so, but his insinuations never came to a point. All his suggestions of a secret ended in nods and shrugs and lifted eyebrows and smothered sighs, which, as Mr. Tomplin said, might mean anything or nothing. Mrs. Barnard was honestly fond of children, and she had attached herself to the youthful Jebs, although they were by no means perfect specimens of juvenile humanity. Yet as the weeks and months dragged on, she began to weary of her exile, her service in a stranger's house, and began to yearn for the sight of her own children. She had made up her mind to leave England before the end of May. She would obtain leave to see the prisoner at Portland before starting, knowing but too well that this farewell interview would be verily the last, and that she would never see the poor old erring father again, and then she would go to her happy home on the other side of the wide sea, and confess that she had failed in her mission. If in the days to come the story of her father's crime and punishment should be made a reproach against her children, they must bear their burden as she had borne hers every life must have its shadow as well as its sunshine and if this were a darker shadow than falls upon most lives it must be endured with patience and resignation jane barnard told herself that she could do no more she had fixed the day of her departure and had given due notice to mrs jebb who piteously bewailed the loss of one of the few good servants she had ever been blessed with and now there remained but a week of her bondage in a strange land and she was full of the thought of the husband and children at home, and the delight of seeing those dear faces after half a year's absence. Domestic life at the homestead had been unusually smooth during Jane Barnard's period of service. Polly, the cook, was a good-natured, flighty, gossiping girl, who did all her work in tremendous spurts, and idled prodigiously between whiles. With this Polly, Mrs. Jebb carried on a continual struggle, which in a woman of sterner temper would have been actual warfare, but which, with mild Mrs. Jebb, never rose above a plaintive remonstrance and tearful complaint. But with Jane Barnard Mrs. Jebb never complained, and Polly, the cook, declared that Jane managed her mistress. Jane was energetic and businesslike, met all the petty difficulties of a narrow domestic sphere with calm resolution and perfect temper, and brightened the surgeon's home by her hopeful spirit and never-ceasing industry. "'It's very hard that when I get a servant who suits me so well she should go to America,' 
sighed Mrs. Jebb. "'And now I have to look about me again, and Osthorpe's servants are so bad.' Mrs. Jebb's looking about consisted generally in making her wants known to the butcher and the baker, and then waiting till Providence should send her some kind of servant, bad, good, or indifferent, as the case might be. But if Mrs. Jebb had reason to complain of the shortcomings of female servants, Shafto, for his part, declared that cooks and housemaids were angelic beings, as compared with that pest of society, the outdoor man. He was perpetually at war with the man-of-all-work who looked after his horses, cleaned carriage and harness, occasionally drove a gig, and employed his leisure hours in working in the scrubby, untidy garden, given over for the most part to gooseberry bushes and cabbage stalks, which were not fair to look upon, but which were of some use in producing a nondescript leafy vegetable known as greens. This office in Mr. Jebb's household had been filled and refilled many times during the surgeon's career, and was apt to be vacated suddenly with storm and tempest, the groom turning out either a hopeless drunkard or an incorrigible thief, or perchance a feeble creature who had never touched a horse till he took the situation, and for whom Mr. Jebb's two well-worked screws manifested their contempt by nearly kicking him to death on his first endeavour to valet them. Of late, however, Mr. Jebb, like his wife, had been better off in this respect. The man who had the care of his stables knew his work and did it well. True that he was generally in a maudlin state every night, that his appearance was gaunt, and his private wardrobe better adapted for a scarecrow than a human being. He could shuffle on Mr. Jebb's livery coat, and thrust his thin legs into a pair of ancient top-boots when required, so to disguise himself, and in this gear, handed on from groom to groom, he had something of the style and bearing of a well-trained servant. "'God knows where the man came from, or what he's been doing all his life,' said Shafto. "'But at some time or other he must have been in a gentleman's service. He has the stamp upon him, even in his decay.' No one knew where Tinker came from. Tinker was the name by which he insisted upon being known, yet every one had a rooted idea that it was a feigned name. Charged with want of candour on this subject, he argued the question in this wise. Nineteen year ago there were a horse called Tinker won the ledger, wasn't there?' he demanded, and the person addressed, being usually more or less ignorant, was apt to reply in the affirmative. "'Very well, then,' answered the groom. "'If Tinker was a good enough name for him, it ought to be good enough for me, didn't it?' whereupon no one felt able to gainsay him, and as Tinker he was generally accepted and received in that circle of society in which he was privileged to move. He was a sententious person, and had strong opinions upon some subjects, but of his own antecedents he said never a word. He had turned up in the stable-yard of the Peacock one market-day, and had there addressed himself to Mr. Jebb, as that gentleman was watching the harnessing of his horse by somewhat unskilled hands. He had heard somehow that Mr. Jebb wanted a groom, and offered himself for the place. As to character, well, no, he couldn't give any. He knew no one in these parts. Mr. Jebb hesitated. Experience had taught him that a character with a servant is very much like a warranty with a horse, inasmuch as both are worthless. He told the man to call upon him that evening, and his last groom having been violently ejected the night before, leaving the stable work on the surgeon's hands, 
he took the waif into his service on trial. "'If you don't suit, you must go at the end of the week,' he said, to which the man calling himself Tinker agreed. Tinker did suit, and Tinker stayed. He was a man of curiously exclusive habits, spending all his leisure in a wretched shed next to the stable, which Mr. Jebb called his harness-room. Here, in company with boots and blacking-brushes, a colony of empty bottles and the well-worn harness, Tinker devoted his evenings to the perusal of any old newspaper which he could get hold of. He was not fond of society. When he drank, he drank in the retirement of his own den, and needed not the charm of good company to give flavour to his liquor. The three sugar-loaves knew him not. Perhaps he shrank from exhibiting his tattered raiment in such a prosperous tavern. Perhaps he was by nature and inclination a recluse. All went smoothly in the stable. The horses were better groomed than they had been since Mr. Jebb had owned them. The harness was brighter, the general turnout more creditable, and the surgeon congratulated himself upon his own discrimination in having picked up such a servant, and upon his own courage in having taken him without a character, when within a few days of Mrs. Barnard's intended departure, Mr. Jebb made a discovery which wrought an appalling alteration in his feelings towards Tinker. The wine-cellar at the homestead was not a stately vault, nor was it stocked with a valuable collection of choice wines. But poor and dilapidated as the cellar was, and small though its contents were, Mr. Jebb kept the key of it himself, and guarded its treasures with peculiar care. He had a good supply of bass, and a bin of high-clear ale, bottled and laid down by himself. He had a dozen or so of port, in case of illness, three or four dozen of sherry to give his friends, and at the end of the cellar, in a narrow arched recess deep in the old brickwork, he had a snug little stock of spirits, including a dozen of a very particular Scotch whisky, which had been sent him as a present from a friend at Inverness. To make the security of this corner still more secure, Mr. Jebb had built up a barrier of beer in front of the shelf where the whisky reposed, so that in the event of a burglarious intruder forcing his way into the stable, the famous Scotch whisky would escape that intruder's attention. With a self-denial that approached the heroic, Mr. Jebb had resolved to let the mellowing influence of time soften and improve the spirit before he converted it into toddy. "'We'll keep it a year or two, my love,' he told his wife. "'I'm not a whisky drinker, and I can afford to wait.' It is a nice thing to know one has such good stuff in one's cellar. One rainy afternoon in this last week of May, Mr. Jebb returned from his daily round amongst outlying homesteads and distant villages, soaked to the skin, and with all the symptoms of influenza. He ordered a fire in the breakfast-room, and sat in his roomy armchair shivering, though wood and coals blazed merrily in the big basket-shaped grate. "'I'm chilled to the bone,' he explained and I don't think anything but a jorum of hot spirits and water will warm me. Do you know, Emmy, my love, I've a deuce good mind to try that whisky. Oh, why shouldn't you, dear? asked dutiful Mrs. Jebb. I'm sure I would if I were you. Nobody has a better right to it. I'll ring for the kettle while you go to the cellar. Mr. Jebb hesitated and pulled his whiskers thoughtfully. I had made up my mind to keep that whisky two years, and I haven't had it more than six months. It seems weak to break into the dozen. Not when it's a question of health, Shafto. 
I'm sure a good tumbler of strong toddy will cure that shivering of yours. Oh, it isn't the shivering only, said Jeb. I feel such a depression. I should be grateful to anybody who would blow my brains out. Oh, pray get the whisky, Shafto. It's dreadful to hear the father of a family talk so wildly, cried Mrs. Jeb, alarmed. Her husband only wanted to be persuaded. He sighed, snuffled a little, felt in his pocket for his key, and went to the cellar. There were no underground cellars at the homestead. The repository in which Shafto kept his wine was on a level with the dining-room, kitchens, dairy, apple-room, and various offices. This part of the old farmhouse was roomy enough for a retinue of servants. The cellar was low and narrow and dark, a kind of arched passage under a back staircase. Shafto had provided himself with a lighted candle as he came along, and he now penetrated the sacred vault. There was the neat wall of beer bottles, with their necks pointing outwards, a fortification in front of the whisky. It was rather troublesome to have to disturb them before the proper time, but Mr. Jebb felt that nothing less than toddy would subjugate an incipient influenza. He moved three or four of the bottles gingerly, and peered into the dusky recess behind. A blank, my lord. Where the red seals of the whisky bottles should have gladdened his eye, he beheld only darkness. He put in his hand, and felt only emptiness. Then, with hands that were tremulous with horror, he rapidly cleared out the range of beer bottles, and made himself master of the ruin behind. Seven of the twelve whisky bottles were gone. And yet no burglar had invaded the house, nor had the key of the cellar been out of Mr. Jebb's possession. He stood with the candlestick in his hand, staring into empty space, utterly at a loss to account for the disappearance of his treasure. Had Mrs. Jebb a duplicate key to the cellar, and a secret craving for ardent spirits? Oh, no, he could not so foully wrong the partner of his struggles as to suspect her of such infamy. Was this American nurse a traitor? Your confidential servant, a superior person, is often a smooth deceiver. End of chapter 36